0: All righty. Let's rock this. I'm feeling good about it.
1: Faculty podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50 plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here at RTS Washington. I'm joined by our academic dean and prof of New Testament, Dr. Tommy Keen, our dean of students and Old Testament professor, Dr. Peter Lee, and our professor of systematic theology, Dr. Grace Sutanto. And we're coming here to the end of the summer. Uh, we, we, don't, we try not to date these too much, but we're actually recording here on the first day of our fall semester, and classes are starting up. If, uh, if you're interested in knowing more about classes, come check us out on rts.edu forward slash Washington. We've got a lot of great events this fall already lined up, uh, including a convocation. Uh, it's going to be happening here early on. So if you're interested in being a part of things at RTSDC, let us know and reach out to us. We'd love to see you uh, and hear from you, not just uh, through this podcast, but also in the classroom. So we're actually going to do a listener question that came in uh, dealing with baptism. Timo, can can you lay it out for us?
2: Yes. This question comes from Mary Ellen, and she asks, regarding infant baptism, what actually happens during infant baptism? During a believer's baptism, it seems as though there's a washing in regeneration and they're made clean. During infant baptism, is it more of a covenant between God and the parents that looks forward to the day of them coming to faith? Is there a regeneration in infant baptism? And if it's a covenant, does it does that mean all believers' children that are baptized are saved?
1: That's a great question, Mary Ellen, and thanks for sending it in. Uh, there's a lot in there, and it's a lot of good stuff. So it's a lot of stuff that we all enjoy talking about. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I'd like to dive into it, first of all, by kind of just making sure we piece out everything that's going on in the question, because you're asking a good question about the difference between the doctrine of believers' baptism and a doctrine of baptism that not only allows but encourages the baptism of the children of believers. And some of the questions that arise, what is that baptism actually doing? Is this just an agreement between the parents and God and has nothing to do with the individual being baptized? Um, Or is it maybe to go to the other extreme, this is actually the regeneration of the child with no profession of faith uh, at the event of the baptism itself, which there are some people who believe that out there, particularly in Roman Catholic circles and some Anglican circles, you'll meet people who believe in baptismal regeneration. So it's raising some really good questions about this doctrine of the covenant sign baptism.
0: I think it goes. The question also goes to kind of a common experience, or at least a kind of a thought process that goes on in our heads. That there's this distinction between baptizing a believer and baptizing an infant, I, and and that um, assumption. You know, you you see these two two different what what seems like two different kinds of baptisms, and you're thinking they must mean something different when it's applied to a believer versus. Uh, an infant, and it re- it reminded me when Timo read the question of this uh e- even even at kind of an ordination level, I was at an ordination exam years and years and years ago where the ordinant was asked the potential ordinant was asked what what does baptism signify in seal um, responded with the Westminster confession good answer, right good confessional answer, and there was a follow up question, what does it signify in seal for infants?" And the result was a bit of chaos in the room because, you know, even even at for those of us who are theologically trained, there does seem to be this experiential disconnect. It must mean something different when it's applied to a believer versus a
1: an infant, a child. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with both kind of a modern sort of out there modern concern. Mm -hmm. in the world for decisionalism rationalism Mm -hmm. self-identity i mean even today we hear people talking about the making of art you know who we are and kind of making yourself and deciding who you are and i think that's in the church as well this kind of tendency to believe um particularly in the modern church which i reason why i think a lot of even presbyterians wrestle with this doctrine that it's all about my decision yeah. My salvation is about my decision, not even in an Armenian sense, but just saying my salvation is all about uh, my personal making of myself. And this broader understanding, bigger understanding, I would say covenantal understanding of baptism, uh, interestingly gets at how these things go beyond our decisions. Right. And yeah. so maybe at the at a fundamental level, just at, at a, as a starting
0: point, we can say that whatever baptism is about, it's ultimately about what God has done and not about me, yeah. Yeah. my my faith. My and, and
1: actually, real quick, Gray, before you jump in, it's interesting that in the sacraments, in the Reformed notion of the sacraments, which are means of grace, the, the means through which the benefits of our redemption are communicated to us in Christ, sacraments are doing this. And we have these sacraments, one of which, the Lord's Supper, in Pauline teaching and in church teaching, has been very much engaging our Participation in the mm-hmm. sacrament, right? It's mm-hmm. it's about me coming to the sacrament and repentance and faith, the the individual discerning the body, mm-hmm. taking it appropriately. And it's interesting, one sacrament is very much about the human participation. And then there's this interesting, there's this other sacrament that is really emphasizing God's sovereignty, yep. the role of the covenant community in salvation, which I think is lost in that really decisionalistic, mm-hmm. kind of rationalistic way of thinking about these things
2: yeah and i think it's really important to emphasize again scott what you said about baptismal regeneration baptismal regeneration or this view that baptism actually effectuates regeneration is definitely present in other traditions not only roman catholic but also eastern orthodox views and so the listener is right to puzzle at it because it does seem puzzling right how can these waters conferred by the priest affect the spiritual reality how does a material act confer the spiritual act. It seems Mm -hmm. almost magical and it seems incomprehensible, especially to the modern mind, not only of the decision-making process that I have to effectuate it, but also in terms of our um, incipient naturalism. How can this material thing, right, affect something intrinsically spiritual? And so when you take a look at Eastern Orthodox writers like Terence Cuneo, and I engaged with him in a chapter that I wrote for the TNT Clark Handbook of Analytic Theology on Baptism, Terence Cuneo actually puzzled at it. He said, you know, as an Eastern Orthodox theologian and a philosopher, I can't make sense of these confessional liturgical statements on baptism that Eastern Orthodoxy makes, which says that the water actually effectuates regeneration. And the way he gets over that puzzlement for someone who has to believe in a, a kind of baptismal regeneration as an Eastern Orthodox philosopher, he actually says that maybe baptism doesn't cause the product of regeneration. But maybe baptism initiates the process regeneration, because for him, uh, it's an open uh, sort of question of whether or not baptism uh, effectuates a a regeneration that is a once for all or a a regeneration that is processive, Mm
1: -hmm. that there is a
2: kind of starting point to regeneration and an end point. So in the Eastern Orthodox mind, there is no clear distinction between regeneration and sanctification or between justification and sanctification to him. Regeneration could be a process. Right? So I think for the reform, the, the problem is even more exacerbated. If we associate baptism with regeneration, because for the reform, regeneration is a once for all spiritual monergistic act from God himself unto your heart. You were once dead and now you were made alive. How can water effectuate it? Well, To give us comfort, the Reformed do not hold on to baptismal regeneration. It simply does not do that. It says that baptism is a sign and seal of our regeneration, of the remission of sins that we receive from Christ, but it is not itself effectuated. And if it's a sign and seal, therefore, uh, the moment of regeneration could be before baptism, could be during the moment of baptism. In some cases, you know, that might actually be the case where for some reason baptism actually initiates something for that person because of what the Spirit does or it could be after baptism. So the point of the Reformed view, and I call it a pneumatological view of baptism, is that the Spirit is free to work in baptism, apart from baptism, or even before baptism, right? And this is the view of Witsius, it's the view of Francis Turretin. So so it's a sign and seal of regeneration and the remission of sins, but that point of regeneration could be a very distinct moment from the moment of baptism itself. And I think that's one thing we gotta say. So. Yes, I empathize definitely with the question because it does seem to to connect, connotate all these other Eastern Orthodox Roman Catholic views of baptism and regeneration, but also just a reminder of what it is that the Reformed tradition actually holds, which is very distinct from those views.
1: And it, and it highlights this idea of God being sovereign and ordaining whatsoever comes to pass. You have to have this notion of a, a thick view of sovereignty that includes the covenant community and the covenant family because otherwise, right, someone will say, well— then where's the power of it, right? If if it's is it just because these you know this kid happened to be born of 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 these believing parents who are inflicting their religion on on the child without him knowing it or something like right. that? But what we're saying is no, God is acting sovereignly in human history and in this this unit of society that is the family. Mm-hmm. You know, and this, this, the covenant family idea is a key part of this whole thing that God's promises are for us and for our children, right? So this is a very natural and organic way of yes. giving sp- expression to our salvation, you know? And so when we talk about our children or ourselves saying things like, I never knew a time when I didn't love the Lord Jesus as my, you know, as my savior, that's a beautiful and actually very organic and natural way mm-hmm. for redemption to take place. And the doc, the, the, the doctrine of, of baptism in the Reformed tradition um, has always held that in very high regard. Right. Right. And, and, and all of us have in the back of our minds, but what about our unbelieving children, the ones who were baptized and have now since rejected the faith? And you would have to say, well, that, that increases the loss and the tragedy yeah, of those things. Right. It's right. It would be like, a, you know, can you imagine a first generation Israelite coming out of Exodus and rejecting the God who freed them and their families from slavery? Yep. It's a deep tragedy. And that's why the Old Testament prophets spend so much time on it. How tragic it is that someone reject would reject the covenant community into which they've been born and raised.
3: There is some, um, you know, the Bible does talk about baptism in a way that um, can kind of suggest this. I mean, there's a reason, I think, that uh, someone might hold to a, a, a baptismal, regenerative view to some extent. Like, for example, um, uh, you know, I'm thinking of something like Acts 2.38, I think, or 36.38, uh, where it says, uh, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Now, it's not regeneration per se there, but it does seem to connect baptism with salvation or forgiveness of sins in this case in a way that is pretty close, uh, you know what I mean? And so um, so it, it, I guess in that sense, it's, it's more than a theological question. It's an exegetical one. What do we do with something like uh, that passage when it says, you know, repent and be baptized? for the forgiveness of your sins. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, Jesus says in John 3, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven kind of thing. Yeah. You know, Also highlighting again sort of this uh, baptism as a part of our salvation. In 1 Peter 3, baptism,
0: which saves you. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I think we got to remind ourselves again of the distinction between two kinds of holiness when it comes to texts like this. Mm -hmm. It's the federal kind of holiness. This is Francis Jordan's language. Federal holiness on the one hand and intrinsic holiness on the other. Federal holiness signified by the water. Intrinsic holiness signified by the regeneration of the heart. So the efficacy of baptism is actually, you know, Scott, you you talked about Israel there. It's about entrance into the covenant community. So when it says that you're saved by water or it's because of water and your faith or water and the cleansing of the spirit, it speaks about not only your regeneration of the heart, but also your inclusion into the covenant community of God. Mm -hmm. So baptism um, um, efficates not just this this sign and seal of, of regeneration, but also it means that you're part of the covenant community, not just part of your family, yeah. but a part of the church community, the, the church Catholic universal, right? And I think that's really important to remember because people say, well, if you're not regenerated at baptism, what does it do then? It just means that you're actually included into the covenant community. And so it, it's a membership thing. And even for adults, it's a membership thing because even for adults, mm-hmm. they get baptized it doesn't mean that they immediately get regenerated at that moment right Mm -hmm. but that it's a sign that in the past perhaps they've confessed their faith and now they're regenerated but now they're part of the covenant or
1: or or maybe they'll be regenerate later and this was not a true conversion right
2: right? exactly you know
1: and so you you have the same issues it's interesting how much weight we put on again sort of a rational decision and we don't want to take the weight off of that obviously right personal commitment to christ is deeply important and yet, as we're running to that, we have to not forget the fact that God is the one who is accomplishing the work of regeneration in the human heart. Right. Yeah, I, I'm I, not initiating it by my decision to make the right, the right the, the, to go the right way. God is initiating. This is a unilateral uh, calling, effectual calling that makes me regenerate, and it's it's on God's timing and it's in God's way. I think there's both theological and
0: pastorally, just really, this is a really helpful focus, putting baptism back on this objective stance of God's work in us. What does baptism signify and seal? It signifies and seals our union with Christ, that God has established a relationship between us and Christ, that he has affected that. Um, Theologically, it solves all sorts of problems. It's not, baptism points to my faith but it doesn't sign and signify my faith it signs and signifies god's work in christ and then pastorally that that's been really helpful parentally it's been practically very helpful for me that um i don't approach my children as vipers and diapers like that
1: <laughs> The, vipers in diapers vipers, is that what you said okay vipers in diapers straight. okay I'm
2: gonna tattoo that on my baby <laughs> I'm, I'm quoting a, I think I'm, you've said this before I'm I've quoting a this. former pastor yeah I've heard um, this
3: before
0: that he would say this uh, when he baptizes you know we, we don't baptize because they're these these little children are vipers and diapers and this this makes them better we baptize because they are part of the church they are they are unite they are united by Christ covenantally united to Christ Mm -hmm. um, and we pray that someday that they will have faith. And parentally that just really clicked for me. I think, Scott, you mentioned this earlier too. Like I don't, I don't, I've never kind of approached my kids as if they're, you know, unbelievers. Mm -hmm. I, I want to call them to faith, but they belong alongside mom and dad at church as part of the covenant people of God. Um, and then we pray and, and and educate and catechize and all that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, and I think it's really important to therefore notice that baptism is an intrinsically transferred term, right? In other words, it transfers you from uh, one community to another community. Think about Noah, the, the baptism of the flood transfers them from one world to another yeah. world. The Red Sea transfers the Israelites to uh, a progress towards the promised land. And so baptism itself is never just a personal thing. It's a transfer to a new community, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And so when it says repent and be baptized, you know, my exegesis, that would be to say repent and join this community. So baptism is not just, hey, I'm signaling to this new faith that I have personally, like, you know, getting a yoga sticker that I'm now a member of this yoga club or something Mm -hmm. like that. Uh, No, it's actually about joining this new family of God, right? And so there's no such thing as repentance and to believe in Jesus on your own. Right. You have to join the body of the church, the body of Christ Himself.
0: It's interesting. I, I don't want to, this to be a distraction from the main point, but it's precisely that distinction. I, Scott, you mentioned this earlier too with the Lord's Supper, um, that these two sacraments, they they both signify and seal my union with Christ, but they do it in different ways. Mm-hmm. To you know, baptism, it is an initiation rite. It is God bringing me into this new community lord's supper is a covenant renewal it's a it's a participation right it is it is a drawing near Um, and so there's a lot of questions about lord's supper whether or not we should be have a Pedo communion theology as well i would argue no for a couple of reasons but that being very central to the overall argument that it they, they are infants are part of the community they've been brought into the community but they don't yet have the kind of faith that allows them to, or they may or may not have the kind of faith that allows them to draw near in a perpetual way. The two, the differences in the way those rites are, those sacraments are constructed mm-hmm. in their different purpose actually calls the one appropriate for infants, the other not.
1: And it's why I think churches, I mean, I, I've always encouraged churches, and my church has done this too should be willing to hear the testimony of children as they grow older. Mm -hmm. The elders should be open to hearing the testimony and profession of faith and be careful about, I get the practical reasons why you pick seventh grade or eighth grade as like the confirmation time, but recognize that some children may come to saving faith before that and be able to give expression to it. And that's, uh, I know in some churches that's kind of a touchy topic, but I mean, that that's actually the outworking of what we're talking about here, that as baptism is confirmed in faith. Age appropriate expression. And of faith. It, it, exactly. An age appropriate, um, uh, credible profession of faith. Um, and that sometimes is uh, might be eight and that sometimes might be thirty four when i give my credible of faith when when I trust your ability to give a credible confession of faith it, it's interesting that we've talked a little bit about the public aspect of this uh I'm in a, a I've been able to be a part of a, a series at my church working through the Heidelberg catechism which is not our catechism for presbyterians um but it in really is a beautiful expression of uh reform theology and we were uh, I just recently got to teach through uh questions 69 through 71 which are dealing with baptism and one of the things that are really highlighted one of the aspects of baptism in addition to the cleansing of the uh, of the water right in the same way the spirit cleanses you of your sin but also the renewal the invigoration towards faithfulness okay and that's one aspect of it but actually early on the first thing they highlight is the publicness of it as a public assurance of faith and, and I think that's interesting because I, I think for reformed folks, we may or may not think of our baptism as a public assurance of faith. But in in preparing for this, I went back and I read Zacharias or commentary on Heidelberg. And, you know, he's one of the drafters of the Heidelberg catechism, very influential in it. And when he's talking about tap baptism, he says this really remarkable thing about the public aspect of it. He says the chief end of baptism is The confirmation of our faith or a solemn declaration by which Christ testifies that he washes us with his blood and spirit and confers upon us the remission of sin. For he, that's Christ, he himself baptized us by the hand of the minister and declare to us this his will. Mm -hmm. And that for those who are in Christ, you know, if you're struggling with sin, if you're struggling with apathy and complacency in the faith and you're going to the Lord in repentance and you're wondering, you know, am I truly chosen by God? Or Sinus is saying in faith, you can look back to your baptism before you ever had a rational thought, right? Before you know, that baptism, before if you were baptized as a child, before you you made a decision, you can look back to it. And you can see this public event of really Christ reaching into time and space through the hand of the church and setting you aside as his. And you should be assured of all the things. There's many things that should give you assurance of your faith. One of them is your baptism, that Christ sets you aside as his. And I think about that, and I, I think about so many baptism homilies that I've heard where Pastors are rightly trying to say this is what we don't think is happening mm-hmm. and how much we miss about what actually is happening. Mm-hmm. That Christ is setting us aside and, and we pray as a community and as parents that this baptism will be improved upon. Yes. Right? And made efficacious by faith in the life of the, of the believer.
2: And that language of improved upon is the language of Westminster Larger Catechism. Mm-hmm. Question 167. Improving upon your baptism means... Uh, fighting those moments of apathy, fighting against sin, repenting, right? And remembering your baptism and saying, I will improve on it. Not such that you're you're adding to it. Not in that sense of improvement. But in the sense of confirming, making real, rendering efficacious the thing that baptism signifies.
1: Make your calling an election sure is another way we might say it. It's talking about a similar thing using different language, right? Yeah, I think
3: that word uh, improve actually in, you know, at the time of the, uh, the writing of the confession, didn't it mean something like uh, appropriate? Interesting. Yeah, like, utilize. Yeah. Um, uh, so it's not using the word improve the way that we use it. Yeah. Uh, the way it's like, make come it better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not like that, but no. it's, you know, now that it's there, uh, uh, use this to your advantage. That's I, I know this know. is going to shock you guys, but as an Old Testament guy, I do have some comments on this. And so, <laughs> uh, first, uh, I guess a lot of what you were just talking about, a lot of what you were talking about, Scott, in terms of the... You know the uh, the renewal through the uh, blood of Christ and the baptism of uh, of us being baptized by Christ, uh, as you were just talking about the uh, the uh, Heidelberg Catechism is is so fantastic. It's and it's right out of Scripture. You know um, Romans four uh, sort of talks about circumcision in that way, uh, which is essentially the same reality as baptism. I guess one thing that, I, that I've often wondered is people tend to think for whatever reason and they and they set aside baptism this way as being something more subjective of something internal within the believer as opposed to an objective sort of proclamation of the gospel. You know Luther, you know remember uh, uh, called sacraments as sort of a visible preaching of the gospel. Um, so, uh, baptism is really more a reflection of the objective work of Christ in us, not necessarily a reflection of our profession of faith in him. I guess that's a question I've often asked and wondered, you know, where in the scriptures does it say baptism is an, is an act of a profession of faith? You know, where does it say that baptism is described as the objective work of Christ that we receive by faith, Mm -hmm. uh, but we have, and we have to believe to receive that. But the baptism itself isn't a declaration of our faith. The baptism itself is the objective work of Christ on the cross. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, even uh, uh, you know Calvin. I've been doing a lot of Calvin reading with a couple of our students, by the way, over the last two years. Mm-hmm. Once a week, we'll just read some Calvin and his discussion on on baptism. And that language of baptism as seen as being so closely connected to salvation. You know, baptized, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. It, it's really interesting. He's almost doing a kind of a, a literary analysis before literary analysis was sort of trendy. Because he kind of used the language of, this is sort of the language of sacraments is what he said. If you look at all sacraments, they all do this. Mm-hmm. This is my body, you know, when it comes to the Lord's Supper. Um, circumcision is described this way, uh, in the old Testament with, um, animal sacrifices in the book of Leviticus, they are told to do this for the atonement of sins, Mm -hmm. which we know is not correct. So how does the Bible use this language of a one-to-one correlation of the sign with what it signifies so closely connected that it uses the is verb, this Mm -hmm. is for this. Calvin says, this is actually the language of sacraments. It's a sacramental way of talking about things that the two realities are so closely connected that you can use that language. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I found that helpful. Um, Yeah. Even uh, uh, now, this might also surprise you, but uh, I think uh, Dr. Meredith Klein is actually helpful when it comes to baptism (laughs) when he makes a distinction between the formal meaning of baptism versus. I can't believe I can't remember what the second one is—the uh, formal meaning of baptism versus the substantial meaning of baptism. That's not the term he used, and I'm embarrassed to say I can't remember what that second point was. But
1: it's okay. <laughs> it's he, not okay, he, he Scott. Would for, he would forgive
3: you. <laughs> but um, I, I may be just—I may have to give up my Meredith G. Klein card <laughs> your pen out at this point boy card. but uh he talked about baptism actually objectively is a um formally is just is a is an act of condemnation and wrath it's a it's a death ritual yeah because it's water so ordeal. based on water ordeals of the old oh, testament yeah, right yeah. so uh and the old and the new testament as it uh teaches about baptism it goes back to water ordeals the flood mm-hmm. burial the uh, red sea the way that they are baptized into moses in 1st uh, corinthians 10 mm-hmm. yeah. so on its own baptism is an actual ritual of death of condemnation of wrath
1: which is what example of children's baptism in the bible when people say there's no proof text well 1st corinthians 10 does say they were all baptized in the sea, right. in the cloud, right? But even, and that uh, includes the children. They're all in it. They, they all, they but all even, left uh, together.
3: Even Jesus, though, uses the language of, throw that of in there, death man. when it comes to baptism. So he talks about his own cross, right, as a baptism that you cannot do. Mm-hmm. So even there, he talks about baptism as a death ritual. Not, uh, But so objectively, kind of formally, yeah. he says that it is a death act. But uh, we receive it by faith, and so substantially, it mm-hmm. is an act of renewal, and life because we receive and resurrection thank you because we receive it uh uh receive it by faith but the beauty of it it is all objective it's it's what god is doing in us that we receive by faith and that's a key kind of element there that um that we need to uh
1: that's so important that's so important that, that the reference point there for a lot of these a lot of this uh this baptismal imagery is Right. That water ordeal. And and you can even, we can even put more bones on it. Like we can explain it more. That washing is a specific kind of washing. It's Mm -hmm. not washing with a, with a delicate soap for your face or something like that. Right. This is a washing where the sin and the wicked is washed away and what emerges. And you know, it's the righteous because it's the thing that emerges. Right. Right. This is Noah and the ark. This is the red sea. Uh, this is what's behind so many of these, uh, the cleansing rituals, you know, the cleansing rituals of the water of cleansing. What is it? It's the red heifer who's been sacrificed. The ash has been mixed with the water and that's used to cleanse the person. But again, the, it's a cleansing of, of a kind of, not to switch the metaphor, but a burning away or a rinsing away of the wicked thing. And because you emerge through the baptismal waters, you show that you have now been made righteous. hmm the, the wicked has been washed away. It's such a powerful imagery. And Klein's, Klein's so important in his contribution to this discussion, I think, in the way that he uses it. And by the way, as you said, yeah, we have, we have washings like this that are once and for all washings in the Old Testament. You have Moses in the, the washing of Israel at the base of Sinai. You have Aaron and the Levites washed and set aside for this specific duty. And so once and for all, it's not a regular washing. This is probably something like what Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls mm-hmm, yeah. are found, with the mikvehot and those repentance washings to enter into the community. This is probably what John the Baptist is doing. So this would have been a rich idea that's informing now this much bigger picture. We're not just, as we've been saying, this is not just initiation into a community. Mm-hmm. This is actually signif- signifying of the washing of the blood of Christ.
2: Yeah, and since you changed the metaphor already there to burning, we can talk about uh, the final judgment is a burning of fire, right? As a baptism by fire. Yeah. And the community of the people of God have passed through that judgment. And we have made it through because we were covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? And so doesn't Klein also talk about Pentecost and therefore the fire ordeal? Yeah. The, the fire above the believers means that they too have passed through judgment. Yeah. It signifies they're passing through. So we all like Klein here. We all like Klein. <laughs> Some of
3: it, if not all Some of it. You guys, you guys
2: are just piecemeal
3: Kleinians. So. Oh, okay. wow. wow!
1: Smorgasbord Kleinians, wow. just picking what we want. It's good stuff. It is true. It's beautiful. And I, Christian, think of your think of your salvation. as that? Uh, you have passed through the final judgment. Yeah. I, I love that picture. The judgment has been meted out on your head in full in Christ. Yep. John
0: six. You've been buried with
3: Christ and yep. raised with Him. I, I do You're have a practical question for us to kind of think through, uh, and something that uh, tragically and sadly I've had to deal with pastorally a lot over the last twenty years or so. But it's the uh, death of our children uh, mm-hmm. and the comfort that we can give to com- uh, to parents uh in terms of the uh uh you know in in the light of it in the light of the tragedy of the death of a child um is there anything in this discussion that we're doing here that we could actually uh encourage parents with uh when something like this happens i mean i'm actually quite surprised uh and uh I don't know. Yeah, I guess surprised just how frequently this actually happens, and how mm-hmm. many times this is not a hypothetical. This is an actual, real scenario that we wrestle with, and our students are going to have to wrestle with yeah, on a absolutely on a not daily basis, but on a, a, a you know on a fairly regular basis. So, mm,
1: that's a good question.
0: Well, um, it's a it's a challenging question. It's. But it's one of those questions where I was, when I was wrestling with that some time ago, theologically, not personally, but theologically, I was, I found the Reformed tradition to be wonderfully robust and comforting. Like the confessional standards, I think pulling a lot from First Corinthians 7 and other passages the pre the the presumption is that covenant children are with the Lord, and you know First Corinthians seven talks about how very different practical issue. But what do, what should a spouse do if they come to faith and are married to an un, 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 as a result of coming to faith, married to an unbeliever? Paul's the trajectory Paul sets is you, you stay with that because you sanctify your whole household. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, your children would be unclean. Really, it, there's a lot of puzzles there. There's a lot of exegetical things to figure out, but it seems that Paul's presumption is that the children of believers have been washed. They've been washed covenantally by, by God. And so there is this uh, hope that in God's sovereignty, Mm -hmm. the children of believers belong to the Lord even before they have publicly exercised faith.
2: Yeah, that's one of my favorite passages to teach about baptism and this idea of federal holiness that the Reformed tradition puts out, uh, or Voss's term of being under the covenant as opposed to being in the covenant. So if you're baptized, you're under the covenant, but you could improve on it by being in the covenant, by Mm. actually fellowshipping with the Mm. Lord. But 1 Corinthians 7, I think it's verse 14 to 18, Just a wonderful uh, display there, explicitly in Scripture, of this notion of the whole household being made clean or holy, rendered federally holy, not intrinsically holy, right, by virtue of one person's conversion. Uh, We use that for for membership class, and I do think that, um, in our church back home in Jakarta, to show why we do baptize infants. So I do think that 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 should be the hope of the Christian.
3: But if you think about it, at the end of the day, for a a parent mourning the loss of a child, that is the ultimate source of comfort yes yeah. Yeah. i mean it's not all right they're obviously not going to grow to go to harvard and so forth but you know yeah. the the uh the, the assurance you can give to them of that and and the language of the confession is really it's 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 not it's not that it's not clear it talks about elect children but it and then the presumption is that uh you know our state but then um non-elect children are not i guess but it doesn't ever say that it just seems to pe- specify the idea that you know the uh, yeah. there is there is grounds uh, scripturally to give comfort to mourning parents yes. that their children are with the Lord, and that's not just wishful thinking. Mm-hmm. That is actually rooted in the language of Scripture. Yeah. I'm thinking of like uh, uh, Deuteronomy 30 uh, verse 6: The Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. So that they can now love the Lord, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not limited just to the individual, but to the community uh, around them.
1: Mm-hmm. And you, you can say, we can say, there's there's a lot that we don't know, um, but I need to I do know this: that God saw fit to save people in this way, and we can hold on to that with all of our with all of our grip. Mm -hmm.
3: Amen. And I think it given, you know, our subject matter here, it's uh, important to stress that we can give parents this assurance, not because they were baptized per se. It's not the baptism that regenerated them, saved them. Uh, We have this assurance because of the covenantal promise of God.
1: Mm -hmm. And so let me um, do you have another ad?
2: Just a quick comment on that, too. So when we talk about, you know, baptism means being included into the covenant community, there's real blessings to be a part of that covenant community. Right. There's particular commands, uh, scriptural indictments, scriptural teachings, theological teachings, particular habits, formations that your child is going to go into. And even if they do end up leaving the faith later on, uh, there are particular practices and habits and beliefs that perhaps would still be ingrained within them. You know, so um, I, I take great comfort in that. That 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 when you're part of the covenant community, this is not just a badge you hold on to. This is actual in, uh, introduction into a community that is a kind of greenhouse for sanctification and opportunities for therefore regeneration really do abound. I was just reminded of this about um, you know one of my wife's sisters was working in a very non-Christian environment, and she said that every time she met with um, Business people from this Christian school that is very famous around the city, um, even though they're not believers they're very different as non-believers. They're almost virtuous non-Christians because their parents were Christians mm. and uh, because they went to this international Christian school that I also went to. And they said that, you know, they would think more purposefully, they would think more uh uh, with, with, with more of a view towards philanthropy and so on. So anyway, covenant blessings are real.
1: I, that's that's so important. I think particularly in, in a day like today where so much of the publicity about the church is about scandals and abuse and, and problems. Right. We don't think about the beautiful gift that we have to be a part of this community. Mm-hmm. That this is where lost souls are found. This is where the dead find life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to your point, if you're thinking, well, what are the blessings of the covenant community apart from saving faith? Because mm-hmm. I would say saving faith is one of the major blessings of the covenant community. But there are other blessings that you can enjoy in the covenant, covenant community, even if you're not, uh, um, uh, even if you don't enjoy the gift of saving faith. Um, it's interesting, you know, if you look at Hebrews 6, right? He, he lists out a few. He says this, for those who have been enlightened. hmm Okay, for those who have tasted the heavenly gift, not exactly sure what that could be. Some argue that that's the Lord's Supper. If we just had a Hebrew scholar here, we can answer these questions. Um, For those who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of God and the powers of the age to come. These are things that you can enjoy and yet not have saving faith, according to the author of Hebrews. And, you know, the, the next question is, so then what about these people who leave these covenant children? who enjoy these things and yet don't have saving faith. You know, I think the author of Hebrews is saying this, this is a thing that happens. Mm -hmm. These are people who you'll see and they'll be in your midst. And it's tragic. Um, By the way, I don't think he's saying that therefore anyone who is backslidden or goes through a season of rebellion should be written off from the church. We should always be praying that baptisms will be improved upon even in the, the heart of adult apostates that they might return. However, the author of Hebrews is saying there are those who won't be, And how do you know who they are? They won't be able to repent. You'll notice that they they won't be marked by repentance. So, you don't you don't have to wonder if you're one of those people, if you're repenting to the Lord, because these are people who don't repent. Okay. So let me move then from a pastoral question uh, to maybe more of an apologetics question, but it is, it is pastoral to a certain extent. Some of my Baptist friends, and of course we teach here at RTS. Just to remind everyone, while we are uh, confessional, we're not denominational, and we have multiple denominations represented uh, in both in our faculty, but also in our student body. And specifically, we have a large number of Baptists, mm-hmm. and this is something that we consider a thing that rational, reasonable, faithful Christians can disagree upon. We hold our view strongly, but at the same time, this is something that we we welcome being in communion with our Baptist brothers and sisters, uh, even while we disagree on these topics. And one question I've heard pushback on is, okay, uh, you covenantalists, (laughs) if that's the case, then when an adult becomes a Christian, why do we only baptize the adult? Why don't Mm. we baptize Mm. everyone in his family, even the adult members of his family? If he owns a business, why don't we baptize the members the people who work for him in his business or say he has servants who work in his house uh you know ser- servers i'll put it that way uh, who work in his house why don't we baptize all of them as well if you guys are so committed to the covenant family where's the consistency <laughs> any, any good thoughts i'm waiting I'm, scott for your answer <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you heard this before i have okay
3: i have heard this before yes
2: one run route of answering this question would be to say that the Western church really is inconsistent on this. And actually, if you go to particular places in Asia where corporate identity is the de facto presupposition about what makes you know the Christian faith real and how it is that we should therefore think about ourselves, um, people do strive to baptize the whole household, including drivers, maids. Uh, they actually try to catechize them and they try to send them to church. And they have to go to church there to work for these families. So just to put that out there, perhaps this is an indictment towards the. This Western
1: is more church. of a Western. Uh, this might be a Western problem, Western, or, th- or this question yeah. is is made plausible in a Western context. In a Western
2: context, yeah. yeah. That's, That's
0: interesting. really interesting. That's interesting. I would argue that it wouldn't go beyond the, the household. Well,
2: yeah. Uh, well, what's uh, what is it? What is a what household? is a household, including yeah. servants? Yeah, right. True. Uh, First Peter, Colossians. Mm.
1: So my, my initial thought was to that extent, first of all, I thought, yeah, maybe we should rethink how we think about this to some, to some extent. Right. But then I was thinking, okay, so theologically, yeah. how do I understand that? And, and again, to go back, the organic uh, understanding, the natural understanding of covenant family baptism mm-hmm. is that the child will grow and be raised in a family in which they are catechized to use that term. They are Mm. raised in the faith. They are discipled according to the faith and the covenant into which they've been baptized. And just as I wouldn't, um, I would not encourage a complacent family who has no interest in raising themselves, living according to the gospel or raising their children and being discipled according to Jesus Christ. I would not say just enter into this formal arrangement with no plan to actually be faithful to it. Right. Okay, that would be a complicated conversation to yeah. have, right? And I think actually, for a lot of us, that's that's what a lot of churches do. It's just a formal thing you do to join the club. There's no real attempt to improve upon a baptism. Likewise, I would say if an adult convert was became you know was baptized, it's something I think it does behoove them to go to the adult members of their household mm. and say. I am coming under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I would invite you to come into it too. If they reject him or you know or her, if they reject the person, then I would not force a baptism upon them because that would be a forced apostasy, right, right. Mm-hmm. However, I would encourage them. Mm-hmm. to come in and join in under the covenant sign that the head of the household is entered into. Now in the West, this would all seem very anachronistic and strange. And that probably is more of a critique of the West than it is of, um, you know, of, of the doctrine. But it's probably something we ought to think about a little bit more with adult converts
0: mm-hmm.
1: and might make for some awkward conversations. Let's mm-hmm. say, have you gone to your family and told them what's happened and invited them to come in with you into the covenant and fam- covenant membership?
2: Yeah. Mm. And it is a big question. So I'm not just heralding Asia Oh, therefore Asia is just better on the West on this because it does strike against a particular other convictions that I think are also biblical, like religious liberty, yeah. the idea of common grace. So I had a lot of Asian families when the head of the hospital become um, a Christian, they would reconsider their whole staff. You know, maybe we should therefore not hire maids or drivers that are not, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Christian. Maybe we should ban people wearing particular religious outfits. Um, when they come to their home or when they work for them, so um, one is not necessarily better than the other,
1: right? Right. That's a good. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good point. The um, but I think it does it does press us to think a little bit more corporately about our faith. Yes. we're so used to atomizing individuals to great damage. I think as well that we atomize the individual to such an extent that we we write off these natural, organic human relationships that we have. Yeah. in the form of the family and, uh, you know, specifically. um, And we need to make sure that even even when we're trying to rightly apply the sacrament for an adult convert, that we're not ignoring the fact this adult convert is the part of a family. Yeah. Okay?
2: So a friend of mine, we were just talking about this earlier, and she was saying that if you are becoming a nanny for her household, they have to sign a contract. And one of the contract clauses says we're a Christian family here. You will only uh, teach... Things that are consistent with christianity here mm-hmm. and especially in a very islamic environment that was very controversial mm-hmm. um but i think most impossible to the same thing
1: yeah for those of you looking for consistency on this this would be like inviting in the sojourner to become a member of israel through circumcision exactly and then now beginning a new line of covenant family under israel mm-hmm. marked by the sign of circumcision and as john gerstner points out In in what other way is the new covenant more constrained than the old covenant? It's always more widely offered. It's never more constrained. It's always a movement from lesser to greater. And so why would we say in the old covenant, you could invite in the children of believers, but in the new covenant, you can't. Yeah.
2: So the Baptist <laughs> friends, corporate all the way down.
1: Huh? Uh, right, right. But it's a good question. And it actually is, it's a good challenge to us. But as, in, as with a lot of good apologetics questions, you have to ask, okay, so which values are being offended in this question? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Is it my Christian values or is it my Western values or my cultural values? Exactly. Brothers. It's been wonderful to interact with you, Sister Mary Ellen. Thank you for the question. And uh, thanks for the conversation that it sparked. I hope this has been a benefit. It's been a benefit to me. You all are always a, a deep enrichment to me in these conversations. We're going to continue on with our reading guides this fall. And so we hope that those will be a benefit to you as they help you in the reading of Scripture. It's been great being with you all this week. Can't wait to be with you next week. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening this week. We can't wait to be with you and get back to our reading guides. We've got a few planned in the hopper, so we're going to keep working through those this fall and uh, hoping to uh, help you read your Bibles more strategically and hopefully get more. Um, you know. Sorry, I, had to, did, I didn't even did know where that s- sentence uh, was in. Strategy,
0: strategy. That's right.